Our God and Father, you indeed are a great and mighty God, and part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And uh, we thank you that we can laugh uh, in your presence. We thank you, Lord, that we can have fun, true fun. But Lord, we also are mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who are on the front lines, those who we've been praying for diligently. We lift up the Amblers to you and the Huffmeyers. We lift up Megan to you as well. And uh, Lord, she asks us specifically to pray for her as she's in transition. Lord, uh, she and her team are not going to go back to her area of ministry. But Lord, we, uh, we do know that uh, as, as far as at least I understand that uh, she's still ministering to the, the folks that uh, she has been ministering to all along. I pray, Lord, that you continue to use her in great and mighty ways. Father, we will lift up to you as well, Ryan, and we thank you for the good report that we heard from him via letter. We ask that you would continue to bless him greatly, give him great wisdom to be able to um, speak to his Sally and uh, to speak truth. And Lord, we pray that your truth would prevail in James's heart, that Lord, he would turn and come to know you as uh, you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Savior, as who you really are. Father, we lift up to you um, uh, uh, Elijah today, and we're asking God as, as he continues his training, uh, Lord, we understand that he is not even able to lead the base, but we ask God that you continue to help him to understand, Lord, who he needs to minister to and who needs to minister to him. Lord, I pray that you would help him to hone his warfighting skills, that he would be a, a, just a, a great Marine, but even more importantly, Lord, that he would be a great spiritual warrior as well. So, Lord, we pray that you would help him, give him an overwhelming sense of his mission there at Fort Lee. And so, Father, we're just asking now that you would open up this word to our hearts. Help us, Lord Jesus, to understand really what it means to, to, uh, to minister to those around us, um, maybe in, in ways that are wise and maybe even ways that the world would see as foolish. And we're just going to thank you, Lord, for what you do here in this, in your inspired, in your inspired word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But let me begin this morning by reminding us of two Proverbs that seem to be contradictory. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what is up with this, and why are we starting this message this way? Well, let me answer the first question like this. Pastor and author Sid Bazell writes, these two sayings belong together. They complement each other. Their point is that no one should be drawn down to a fool's level in verse 4, but at times he must use the fool's language to refute the fool so he does not become conceited. Bazel goes on to say that the Jewish Talmud, which is the oral tradition of the early rabbis, suggests that verse 4 pertains to foolish comments that can be ignored, and verse 5 refers to erroneous ideas behind those words. And those ideas are things that must be corrected. Wisdom is needed to determine when to apply these truths. Well, indeed, And just like with everything concerning God's Word, it takes wisdom, divine wisdom of knowing what, when, and how to apply it. And so today, in our passage, 2 Corinthians 11, 16 through 33, we're going to see Paul apply divine wisdom, 
but in a most unusual way as he puts Proverbs 26, verse 5 to work. Paul is going to answer fools according to their folly. Hence the reason why I began the message this way, and hence the title of the message. And Paul is not going to only deal with false teachers, whom he actually labels fools in verse 19. Paul is also going to answer the Corinthians according to folly as well. For they put up with, and they were fooled by the fools. And this is of dire consequence. Throughout 2 Corinthians, we've been following what amounts to Paul and his plight over the Corinthians. We've seen over and over that the church Paul started is at a crossroads. Would they continue in the gospel that Paul preached, the road of truth? Or would they follow the false teachers and taking the road called apostasy, falling away from the Lord? Well, tragically, this is not the first time that Paul has dealt with people on the threshold of committing apostasy. In Galatians, which Paul Paul wrote a couple of years prior to penning this letter, 2 Corinthians, he gave those in the Galatian churches a warning. In Galatians 5.4, he says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. This is church folk he's talking to. And time fails us to consider even a few of all the places in Scripture where God's Word tells us it is possible to leave the faith or more appropriately to abandon the Lord. It is a real thing. And the possibility of apostasy wasn't limited to the first century. Think of the so-called marquee Christians of recent days who have recently proclaimed to have left Christ, Joshua Harris, for one. Maybe you've heard of Joshua Harris. He was on the leading edge of what many call the evangelical purity movement. He actually wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've heard of that. A couple of years ago, he actually apologized for the content in that book. He announced to the world that he was divorcing his wife. And then he declared these words, I am not a Christian. Now, I mention apostasy here because today we need to refresh our minds with a sense of Paul's desperation over the spiritual condition of the Corinthians. For Paul's battle between him and the false teachers was not mere religious banter. This was a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And let's not forget our passage. 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen to 33 comes right on the heels of 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15. Here, Paul accuses the false teachers of even being in league with Satan himself. So we can be sure as to how seriously Paul considers the errors of the false teachers the Corinthians allowed in their midst. But now, Paul does have a dilemma. He has a problem here. He does admit that he does not have the flamboyance of the false teachers, the flamboyance of the kind that the Corinthians really appreciated, that they really enjoyed. His conviction is that he would live and give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, the plain teaching. Paul knew that his message was not a popular one, regardless of how it would be presented. 
He said in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that Christ crucified was a message that was scandalous to the Jew and it was moronic or stupid to the Gentile. And if anybody would actually embrace the gospel of Christ, it would be because of the power of God alone. And sure enough, God was pleased through the folly of Paul preaching this message of Christ crucified, the gospel of Christ, to place a number of precious souls into the kingdom of His dear Son. They went from spiritual death to spiritual life, a resurrection. Brother John talked about that today. And though the church in Corinth had major issues, at least they accepted and they received Paul as he preached the truth. But unfortunately, they welcomed false teachers as well. But it was not so much the content of the message of the false teachers that appealed to the Corinthians. The adage for them was this, it's not what you say, but how you say it that counts. Without a doubt, the false teachers had a professional style that mesmerized the Corinthians. Many people were trained in public speaking, called rhetoric back then. A lot of people were doing that. And if we remember, public speaking was a popular spectator sport in Corinth. Remember, they they had these contests, and they were really on par with the Olympic Games there in Corinth. And these speakers went through much rigorous training so they could be the best at what they did. Now, some of the training these public speakers went through were actually recorded in a textbook, so to speak, called Georgius, where part of the aims of these speakers were simply like this. It was mostly art without knowledge. It was a form of flattery that produces pleasure. This is what they were aiming for. They were aiming for the good feelings produced and elicited with their audience. The book goes on to say that there is a place for abusing one's audience, though the untrained orator is likely to do it openly and too often, mistaking abuse for speaking freely. In other words, they could abuse their audience, and that was okay with them. They could insult them all day long, and the audience thought that it was okay. The training continues. The novice-level orator seeks themes that may beguile or even deceive those in the audience, even at the cost of the most perverted tastes. Gutter stuff. That's what they were going after. They were even taught to wildly gesture as they spoke, like clap your hands together. <laughs> That's what they thought was a wild gesture. Stamp your ground on, with your feet. Slap your thigh, slap your chest, slap your forehead even which back then was, according to this training, was a sure way to go straight to the heart of the more unrefined members of the audience. Now think about our day. What would be the unrefined members in our culture? Uh, You know, we, we got all kinds of names for those, right? But I'm sure these guys, false teachers included, would fit in well with the theatrics of many church leaders today. Think smoke machines and and lights and, and all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, more than likely, Paul was not trained to present in that way. See, the orthodox 
Bible-teaching Jews in the first century were trained like this, to have clear, logical presentations, to include correctly cited sources with the ability to reason out conclusions from them. Their delivery was based on a loud and clear voice with precision in pronunciation. It was also expected that the audience would have a whole lot of Q&A in interacting with, with the presenter, even interrupting his presentation at times. In short, the difference between how Paul presented things and how those who were trained in the Georgian way was almost like night and day. Again, for Paul, the emphasis was on what was said. He wanted to get the message across. But with the false teachers, much more emphasis was placed on how it was said, regardless of the content. All they wanted was the emotional elicitation from the audience. Now, one other thing that we're going to talk about before we actually dive into the passage, and that's simply this. The Greco-Roman public speakers did a lot of bragging on themselves. In fact, the bigger the brag, the better. But the Jewish way of speaking in public was just the opposite. Very little personal stuff was emphasized in their presentations. They just wanted to stick to the text, wanted to stick to what was going on with, with what they wanted to present. And so by way of all this, and we now have our bearings, let's look at verses 16 and 17 of 2 Corinthians 11. And we're going to see Paul's appeal in foolishness. Here's what he says. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, Corinthians, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. And what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as a Lord would, but as a fool. So here's Paul making his appeal to the Corinthians to accept him not as a fool through and through, but only to the level that he may boast. Now, why was that? Because he wanted to answer fools according to their folly. Now, Paul also tells him that what he was about to do was not what the Lord would do if he was physically there present with them. He wanted to present in a style that the Corinthians and the false teachers would appreciate. Paul wants to, as it were, compete with the false teachers who were foolish and probably were mere novices when it came to their oratory skill. Paul wanted to match them boast for boast. And if the false teachers can boast, Paul figured out, maybe I can boast as well. And so here Paul is saying basically this. You remember in The Princess Bride, right? Wesley was challenging Vizzini to a battle of wits, right? They're one of my favorite movies. Only this time, it was Paul entering into a battle of folly with the false teachers, with the Corinthians as the judges. And so now we've seen how Paul wanted to challenge the false teachers to a battle of foolishness. So now let's take a look at how Paul addresses the Corinthians' experience in foolishness in verses 18 to 20. Since many boast according to the flesh, like the false teachers, I will boast also. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For if you bear, for you bear it, if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. Now, Paul is telling the Corinthians what ought to be obvious 
to them, you think? That in their putting up with the devilish teachers, they are doing it to their own hurt. And how foolish is that? But in so many words, Paul says to the Corinthians, you know what? These fools promote themselves and they move your emotions. You are led around by your heart and they've captured your minds. But you insist that you're wise enough to tell the difference between what is spiritually true and good and what is spiritually harmful. Really? Have you really demonstrated that, Corinthians? And to that, Paul tells them, in so many words, Corinthians, turn away from these guys. You do realize, don't you, Corinthians, what they're doing to you. They are calling on you to be their servants. They're separating you from your silver. They're even harming you physically. But you know, some things don't change, do they? Paul dealt with false teachers leading leading them away from the truth in his day. And religious cults, even in the name of Jesus, have sprung up over the years. Leaders of, maybe you remember this if you're a little bit older, leaders of the Heaven's Gate cult. You know, they convinced 38 people back in 1997 to follow these leaders to commit suicide as they were slated to reach a spaceship supposedly located on the Hale-Bopp Comet. In 1993, David Koresh led 76 precious souls to their demise as part of the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas. And the most infamous cult leader, at least in modern day, was Jim Jones. He created the People's Temple in the 1950s. In the 1970s, Jones led almost a 1,000 people to uproot from their homes and create a socialist utopia in Jonestown, Guyana. In 1977, over 900 people committed mass suicide at the insistence of Jim Jones. And the absolute horror of all this, uh, that that the people who were part of, of the People's Temple and those who ended up losing their lives was they had... Baptist backgrounds. The vast majority of the people had them. And one would think that they would have known the difference. They would have known better. But Jones was too flamboyant to be overlooked. He held people in the power of his charisma. And so the point I'm making is that these men, these women leading these cults captured the minds. They captured the hearts of these precious souls. And like the false teachers, these cult leaders disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. And hundreds, if not thousands of people, perished because of the attractional nature of these leaders. This is dangerous stuff. And though the false teachers of Paul's day probably would not have physically killed those who apostatized from the true gospel, they certainly were capable of leading people to spiritual destruction. As Paul said in so many words, you allow them to spiritually abuse you. Stop it. Well, now let's turn to Paul's engagement and boasting in foolishness of verses 21 to 33. So let's read verses 21 and 23 before we then launch into Paul's past and present activities. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Too weak for what? To abuse you, Corinthians. We were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. 
I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, and I speak like a madman. Let's stop there for a moment. Notice here that Paul is making a direct comparison now with the false teachers. He's taking them on in this battle of foolishness. And here for the first time in this letter, he lets everybody know where the false teachers are coming from. They're Jewish. They're a part of the crowd that's been following Paul around, causing him all kinds of trouble. Now, let me just say in passing here that the false teachers were of the belief that if the Gentiles wanted to become Christians, they had to become Jews first. For after all, the Jews were the elect of God. He chose them above all other people on the earth. And they were right. God did elect them. In fact, God created them as a nation. Remember how the Jews, or more specifically, the sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, got started. God called Abram and Sarai, worshipers in pagan religions. He called them out of the earth of the Chaldeans. He called them out of Babylon. Remember as well that Abram and Sarai had no kids. And that was exactly the way the Lord wanted it. He wanted to create a new nation from them. He wanted to create this new people, a people through whom he would save the world in the person of the Messiah. Now, God did a miracle in Sarai's womb. Remember, she was barren. She could have no kids, and God did that miracle. And then the true nation-building activity of God began. And so now we know that the Messiah did come, and the false teachers knew that as well, but they still clung to the erroneous heretical idea that only Jews could be saved, that Gentiles could not be saved. They had to become Jews first. Hence the reason they were in their midst in the Corinthian church. And as an aside, we know that Jesus did not come to create a legalistic religious system made up of only one kind of person. No, Jesus came to save people from their sins, regardless of whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile. And so Paul begins here as to what he and the false teachers have in common, Jewish heritage. It's all well and good. And then he pivots and he asks, are they servants of Christ? And the obvious answer is no. Remember how he described them in verses 13 to 15. He he said they were disguised servants of righteousness in league with Satan himself. And so Paul What is he doing when he's asking this question? Are they servants of Christ? It's probably something akin to laughing at his own joke because he knew that they were not servants of Christ. Now, in verses 23 to 33, we are going to see Paul comparing his past history and present concerns with the false teachers. And so let's pick it up in the middle of verse 23. With far greater labors, he says far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. But let's stop here for a second. Paul grants that these Jews, due to their being outspoken in their religious faith, may have fallen out of favor with the powers that be in the empire. And maybe they were thrown in jail for their activities. And Paul did as well. 
He was thrown in jail for his activities too. But he found himself in jail many more times than these false teachers did. But this is where the comparisons between himself and the false teachers end. Paul goes on to let them have his record full force. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. So let me comment on these statements because there's far more that meets the eye here. In short, Paul was willing to do what it took to bring the gospel to not only Gentiles, but also to his own people, the Jews. See, 39 lashes from the Jews served as a, quote, reinstatement to the synagogue thing. See, after somebody got kicked out of the synagogue for saying something that the synagogue leaders disagreed with, what they considered blasphemy, they were able to come back in if, if they got beat with 39 lashes. In other words, Paul's preaching Christ as the Messiah in a Jewish synagogue didn't exactly go over so well with them. Paul would get expelled from the synagogue until such time as he desired to go back into the synagogue. And then he had 39 lashes in order to get back in there. Paul had to go through this to return to the synagogue so that he could continue proclaiming Christ to the Jews as Messiah. Three times Paul was beaten with rods. This punishment was never levied upon Roman citizens. And we might be thinking, and so what? Paul was a Jew. Yeah, he was a Jew, but he was also born as a Roman citizen. Sort of like a dual citizenship status. And the bottom line is here is that sometimes Paul used his Roman citizenship to get him out of his, out of his beatings, but other times he did not. In other words, Paul did not try to get out of his physical abuse all the time just by playing the citizenship card. He was willing to suffer as a Jew for the sake of Christ. He also says, once I was stoned. Check. Paul was stoned and then dragged out of the city of of Lystra because his fellow Christians thought he was dead. And then what happened? He got up brushed himself off, went back in to the town and began to preach. Now, if I was part of the audience, I think I would listen to Paul. What about you? Three times, Paul says, I was shipwrecked. And this was before the one that Luke talked about in the book of Acts. So in reality, Paul was shipwrecked four times. He says, a day and a night, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city. You see a pattern here? Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, like the false teachers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, Paul says... There is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the church, all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? And I have a good example here in front of me, Corinthians. Remember how one of the techniques of of the professionally trained public speakers included bragging on oneself. I can imagine the false teachers getting hold of this information and then concluding, 
well, I can't compete with all that. Indeed. Can you compete with all that? Can I? <laughs> Doubt it. <laughs> but Paul's not finished. He says, if, literally, because or since I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was blessed forever, knows I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So what was that all about? Instead of Paul boldly confronting the governor at Damascus and demanding his own release because he didn't do anything wrong, he appeared to tuck tail and then escape from Damascus. See, Paul was truly a marked man. He was marked for death everywhere. The powers that be in Damascus wanted him dead. When he went to Jerusalem after he escaped from Damascus, guess what? There was a contract on his life there as well, and he went back to his hometown of Tarsus. Years later, back in Jerusalem, due to some fake news, some false rumors, Paul was accused of committing a crime in the temple worthy of death. Even when he was being transported as a prisoner to Caesarea, we heard about Caesarea today in Bible Fellowship, some bounty hunters were seeking his life, but were thwarted in their endeavor. And as we know, Paul did have his date with death. He died as a martyr in the Mamertine prison in Rome. But it seems to me that the false teachers could not hold a candle to Paul. And I suppose that neither did they want to. See, these guys wanted celebrity status. They didn't want to suffer. They were good at making money off of people, God's people, and ultimately making money off of Jesus. But for Paul, he understood what true discipleship was all about. It was all about denying oneself, taking up one's cross daily and following Jesus. And the foolish thing for Paul was that none of these things he listed was considered by the false teachers as badges of honor. And boastings of these things, without a doubt, caused the false teachers to question Paul all the more. You know, I can kind of hear these guys among themselves talking this way. You know, that Paul, he's really a piece of work, isn't he? If he could only get some training, he could probably find something in his miserable life to find something positive about and talk about that. But this stuff, all this suffering, it's not worth mentioning. Paul's life is one disappointing experience after another. I mean, where's the happy talk? Where's the persuasive power to make people feel good when he's done talking to them? You know, if I were Paul, I think I'd shut my trap at least until I was able to come up with some positive stuff on my repertoire, like I've got. So Corinthians, who won the battle of foolishness? Well, I guess it would kind of depend on who you talk to. If the one was asked who was of the world, a non-Christian, doubtless it would have been the false teachers. If one was asked who was in the world but not of it, like someone sold out to Christ, I'm sure it would have been Paul. So what about you, as you heard this? Who won the contest? Was it the false teachers or was it Paul? 
Did Paul accomplish his objective? Did he successfully answer the fools according to their folly? And so what can we take away from this message today? I've got three application points. First, it was obvious that Paul was far outside of his comfort zone, especially when it came to his boasting. See, this is something that the Lord would never have done if he were physically there. And Paul did this out of love for the Corinthians, ultimately to try to win them back to the truth. And for us, sobering question, we need to ask, how far outside of our comfort zone are we willing to go in order to minister to people, show our love and commitment to the Lord and His people. Think of who Paul was. I reminded us last week what Paul was like in his B.C. days, before he became a Christian, right? He was a model Jew. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. It was his job to make sure that his fellow Jews were adhering scrupulously to all 613 laws. And after the Lord saved him, where did the Lord Jesus send Paul? Pagan, Gentile, Corinth. Interesting contrast, isn't it? See, Paul's very lifestyle was continually living outside of his comfort zone. So we might want to be thinking, in what ways can we be living outside of our comfort zones to serve the Lord and to serve one another? Second, as Christians, the Lord has called us to be ourselves. We need to be transparent with our faults and failures. And we're good at that, aren't we? We know our faults and failures. They're right in front of our faces all the time. But what's not so clear before us is our accomplishments in the Lord and in His ways. We don't tend to think about those things, do we? You know, it's like, I'm just a poor, wretched sinner, and we kind of forget the things that the Lord is doing in our lives. See, Paul dealt with his accomplishments and all these things he listed. In my opinion, these are great badges of honor. And challenge for all of us is simply this. Let's not exaggerate our accomplishments, and let's not use them as comparison with one another. Hey, look how good I'm doing. But neither should we act as though we had no accomplishments either. Every one of us has got accomplishments in the Lord if we know Christ. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians in Rome, in Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. The key to this, sort of like this, Paul, I'm just going to kind of coin this, it was Goldilocks theology. Not too high in your thinking, Not too low in your thinking, but what? Just right, just right. Sober thinking, realistic thinking in the way that we have accomplished things for the Lord. You know, our accomplishments and and how we interact them is kind of like our interaction with money, isn't it? It's okay to have money. We got to make sure that money doesn't have us. It's great that we've achieved things in our lives with the Lord's you know, power and His glory and and how He's used us in other people's lives, but we don't believe our own press about them. Let's remember whose we are, and let's remember to give the credit and the glory to whom it is due, and that's the Lord. 
And third, how we all need to latch on to the encouragement that is very evident in this passage. It's in the form of a question. How easily are you and I moved by how somebody says something rather than the content of what they say? How easy is is it for us, even as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be offended when they say something that's true, but it doesn't come across in a very way that's appealing to us? Oftentimes, we discount the info that our brother or sister tells us because of the way they tell it to us. Isn't that true? Anybody can identify with that? So what this does, it calls for an increasing level of commitment of love and unity and trust with one another. See, if we trust one another, then even if the truth is stated in an off-putting manner, then we know that the other person is pointing it out to us because they love us. We're not suspicious of their motives if we really trust them. And so let's close out this message today by remembering what motivated Paul to do what he did for the Corinthians, as he said earlier in this letter, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, Paul was willing to live outside of his comfort zone because servants don't have such zones. Paul was able to list what he did. He had no shame about it because as a servant, he lived for the agenda of his Lord, not for himself. And may the servant, may servanthood to others for the sake of Jesus be what we are all about. For this is what Paul was all about. And why was that? Because Simply but profoundly, the Lord Jesus loved Paul. Who else does he love? He loves us. Let's show him that we love him by serving others for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for being the servant, the servant of your Father who came, lived a perfect life, but when the rubber met the road, when, when everything was, was coming to a head on that night right before you went to the cross, you took a basin of water and you washed feet. You knew who you were, Lord, because you told your disciples. You said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you all also to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example you told them that you should do just as I have done to you. Lord, I pray that you would bring all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ to the place where nothing will be beneath us. Lord Jesus, that we would look at one another as precious brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that all of us have a past, knowing that all of us have issues, knowing that all of us have accomplishments. And as we have these accomplishments, we can share with one another the things that you are doing and not to be threatened by other people's accomplishments because, Lord, we all know where the power has come from and that power has come from you. Lord, I thank you so much that you have saved us and you saved us for yourself and you've placed us in the body. And I pray that, Lord Jesus, you would help us to truly love one another, that we would be unified 
Because, Lord, at love and unity is the best witness we can give to the world that so desperately needs to know that they don't have to live the way they're living. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us, for giving us eternal life, and for letting us know that this life is not all there is. So help us, Lord Jesus, to love you and to serve you and to serve one another because you have loved and served us first. And I thank you now, Lord, for this time of our giving and also for the time that we can sing. Again, remembering, Lord, that, that there are places, even in our own country, places all around the world where people cannot even sing to you. But that's not that way here. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of this opportunity. And we'll give you thanks for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.